We are all conditioned in more ways than we may realize to think the way that we do. We are, all of us, all of us accustomed to thinking uh, in certain ways, certain patterns. We don't think about how we think any more so than we think about the air that we breathe. Um, we are just so accustomed, so conditioned. Uh, just let me give you a couple of very simple, big, broad brush examples. So if you come from a traditional culture, uh, what that means is in other parts of the world and certainly other parts in history, a traditional culture, that means that your priority is going to be given to that which is uh, beneficial to the group, that which is going to benefit and be uh, helpful to the family, the tribe from which you come. Uh, if you're part of a, a traditional culture. That's what you're accustomed to. Is how you're acclimated, uh, conditioned to think. Uh, however, if you come from a modern culture, which would be, I think, everybody in the room if you grew up in North America, um, that then means that you are not so much given towards the priority uh, of the group, but rather prior the priority of the individual, you. Meaning you're, you're more inclined to think not in terms of what will benefit the family and the tribe, but what will benefit me, what will lend itself uh, uh, towards uh, flourishing of my rights and my freedoms and my privileges. Now, both of those, the traditional culture and the more modern culture, uh, have a point there are benefits and things to be listened to, heard from in, in both. Both can go sideways. Both can go terribly awry. And I'll just think in terms of, on the one hand, honor killings with a traditional culture or the epidemic of loneliness that our culture is suffering from uh, in a more modern context. Uh, both have their benefits. Both have some, some problems. Here's the thing, though. When you're in it, you can't see it. You're accustomed to it. You've been conditioned to it. Uh, you can't see it. You're too close to it. It's so much of who and what you are. Well, here's the startling and humbling thing. Jesus, time and again, says some startling and humbling things to us to jar us awake, to awaken us from the spell that we are in, uh, to, to shift us out of what we are so accustomed to and conditioned by because we are so wrong in so many, many ways. Not the least of which is how we think about community. So, we've heard that word mentioned a few times already uh, in the best announcements of the morning, um, uh, certainly there, and as uh, has been read, the text and the, the prayers prayed, uh, the idea being that this is the second Sunday in which we're really trying to heighten the awareness of the sign-ups for our community groups and why that's important. What's the big deal? Is it just a program we want people to busy themselves or is it actually meant to be... I'll use, a, I'll use an overused phrase, life-giving. Is it, is it meant to move us, be part of something that the Lord could use possibly even in our lives uh, to draw us even closer to him and to one another? Well, the answer is yes. That's what we believe. In fact, the answer is yes. Um, 
So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going uh, right now. Uh, last week we were in a, in a passage uh, considering some things in terms of community, uh, some counterintuitive things uh, there. Here we're going to go to another passage, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 31, kind of sitting right there in the middle of Mark's gospel. So if you're trying to find the gospel of Mark, that's the second book of the New Testament, the second of the four gospels that we have, Matthew and Mark, Luke, John. We are in Mark chapter 10. This is just, if you're reading through the gospel of Mark, this is just before the shift takes place, starting in verse 11, as you move into Passion Week. Uh, Jesus, the, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, um, moving towards the cross and then his resurrection. This is just before, just before that really begins to, that, that train begins to really accelerate uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 31. Hear now God's word. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, can we pray together before we go any further? Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time here, uh, just to, to be still here at the start of this day, start of this week. Um, thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for putting it in our hearts to want to be here. Uh, thank you for there in the, the opportunities here before us. Uh, so much we've already been able to experience just together this morning in this corporate worship service in hearing your word read and prayed over and the songs sung together. Uh, we thank you for that. that these are just Good, good things in and of themselves. Uh, we thank you for a little extra time to spend in looking at the, a passage of, of your word, what you have uh, inspired and preserved, and we know by your Holy Spirit can also press down deeply into our hearts, not just the mind, but you can push it even further, and we ask that you would into our hearts. Change us. Would you please change us? Um, however it is we came into this room this morning, especially thinking of community, uh, would you help us to see it more truly and value it for what it is and then walk it out? We pray in your name. Amen. So in case you didn't know, this part of the country is known for its sinkholes. 
quite a few, in fact. You can be just accustomed to seeing a, a house sitting there in your neighborhood on the block, just down the street. It has sat there just fine, undisturbed, perhaps for decades. And then one day, suddenly, the earth opens up. It's the porch that's swallowed up. It's the garage that's swallowed up. It's the kitchen. That, or maybe it's the whole blooming house is just sucked into this subterranean hole, this cavern just, just takes it all completely down in there. And you think to yourself, or you say to yourself, and this is common, the way we respond to that, it just came out of nowhere, that hole. Never saw it coming, when in reality, what had been happening for years building up to that moment was this underground erosion such that the top of a cave dropped out, and so the bottom of the house dropped with it. And there you have the sinking of, of the sinkhole. Worth knowing. Hope you've got insurance. I think you probably do if you bought a house around here. Lessons that can be drawn from a sinkhole. I think that are, these are not the three points of the sermon, so you don't have to write this down just yet. Um, but there are actually some things worth thinking about. When you just kind of like stare at a sinkhole long enough, these are some things worth contemplating. That is to say the effect of um, just the slow, steady erosion of things in our lives, incremental, seemingly meaningless, non-consequential events and decisions that we make that over time can open up a hole. That'd be one. Uh, another would be, you know, things for a long time can look really good on the outside when in reality, down deep, there's a disaster just waiting to happen. One more. Uh, that is the danger of self-deception of thinking everything's just fine. Ain't no sinkhole. <laughs> that would never happen to me. Don't have to worry about it. The danger of self-deception and therein the need for wise warnings. For wise warnings. And that's what we have here in this passage. A series of them, actually. Building, and we're going to cover two that, that take us to the point of community, but we're going to talk about the first two warnings briefly and then make our way there. But the context of the text, if you back up just a little bit into, into Mark 10, is this dialogue, this exchange between Jesus and this rich young man. Some of you may know him as the rich young ruler. And this wealthy young fella comes to Jesus. He's got a sense that there's a, there's a lack of completeness in his life. He, he needs something, and he recognizes there's a vacuum, there's a hole. And so he comes to Jesus, recognizing there's something about this man that I, that, that I find compelling, and I need to talk to him about this. And so they have this conversation, and Jesus says to him, in love, he doesn't, mince, he doesn't play around, he doesn't mince the words, he doesn't massage the words, he tells him just what the man needs to say in, here in love, and he, what he, in essence what he tells the guy is, look, what your house, if you think of your life as a house, what your house needs is not a, an addition, but a demolition. And that's just a little much for the guy to take. And so he doesn't take it, and he walks away, and the gospel writers tell us he was grieving, he was sorrowful as he left. 
Now, what we just read flows right out of, of that exchange. And what, you, what we read as we keep going here in, the, in these next several verses as, these, as the conversation is that afternoon or that morning, whatever it was, is unfolding, we see yet more surprises and warnings that Jesus is giving. And just as with that young, wealthy man that Jesus is speaking to, he's speaking to us, his followers then, as he said it for the first time, and as he's still saying it here today, he's saying these things, he's giving us these warnings out of love, love beyond our measuring, comprehending for us. He's giving us these warnings out of love for us. Oh, that we would humbly hear them. Oh, that we would take them in and absorb them, understanding the heart from which they've come, and humbly take them in, these warnings. What warnings, you may be wondering. Well, this is where you can, now you can look at your outline, uh, finally. I'm not talking about sinkholes anymore. Uh, the three points where we're going here, the, the three types of warnings, three arenas of warnings that we're going to get into, again, building to the point of community. First, the danger of wealth. Secondly, the problem of works. And then thirdly, the question of worth. So wealth and works and worth. Let's go. We'll see where this takes us. First, the danger of wealth. It seems a little obvious as you're shifting here from the, what's happened here with this rich young man. This is what you see in verses 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, let me just stop there. So imagine the scene. The disciples are, have been listening to what Jesus has said to this guy, okay? And he has shaken their snow globe. He has rattled their cage. They're a little stunned by what they have heard him say to this rich young man, and they're watching him do a 180 and walk down the street. And now they're puzzled trying to take this in and figure it out. What just happened here? What just happened here? And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What on earth the disciples are thinking of, thinking here. And Jesus, what he's trying to get across to them, the danger of wealth, meaning the effect of money, on our hearts, the great potential effect of, that money can have upon our hearts. Money has a way as we chase after it, as we work towards it, as we aspire towards more of it, has a way of, of deepening an independent streak within us. Oftentimes cutting us off from other people and any sense of need of other people and God himself, because I'm doing fine. I've got this money. I've got this wealth. I've got these material goods. What do I need you people for? And I don't even know if I need God. I'm so self-sufficient. This independence that it has a way of stirring up and building up within us, as well as a sense of overconfidence closely related to that. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance which in and of themselves are not bad, but can go to seed, can go sideways, become obstacles, as Jesus says here, to the kingdom itself. If it goes deep enough, 
That sense of independency, that sense, sense of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, such that we have no sense of needing God? Well, now money has really done its work. It's destructive work on our hearts. So much so that Jesus then uh, uses this um, metaphor to drive home a very hard truth. Hard for us, I think, still today, all these years later, to, to really believe, to, to, to really absorb, to really take in. He uses this metaphor, this picture of a camel, the largest land animal in the region at the time, trying to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest opening in the ordinary house, which, of course, is just ridiculous. It's absurd. It's not going to happen, which is the point. It's completely the point. It's impossible. Therein, Jesus is speaking of the dangers of wealth, what it can do to our hearts. Money, wealth, material possessions can be an idol. It can be a false god. It can become that which we worship and serve, that which we turn to and trust and chase after as the ultimate thing, that we, if we just had that, then all would be well. But here's the thing. Money is what's often been described, and wisely so, as a surface idol. There's a whole lot of stuff down, down beneath that tip of the iceberg of the money idol. Oftentimes what's driving that chasing after the material goods, the wealth, the money, is not just the bigger bank account, but what that bigger bank account represents, security and control. That's what I want. Or perhaps power and influence. That's what I want. Or perhaps comfort and ease. That's what I want. Or maybe affirmation and approval. That's what I want. And out of the, any of those desires or so, some wicked admixture, we then chased after the wealth, the material goods, because of the deep, deeper desire that only Jesus can meet. And we're trying to fill it with money. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this is why Jesus is putting this warning before us here. Out of love. Out of love and concern for us, his people, still today, still now, this moment, us, you and I in this room, the danger of wealth, that we would hear it. Oh, that we would hear it. Well, that then takes us to the second warning. It moves us, takes us especially as you look at the flow of the conversation. Not just the danger of wealth, but the problem of works. And I don't mean public works, uh, utilities and such. I mean good deeds. Doing the right thing or not doing the wrong thing. That's what I mean by that. Uh, Mark 10, verses 26 and 27, just picking up where we left off. And they were, this is the disciples, after what he's just said about the camel and the needle, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What Jesus is doing here is exploding, blowing up, our simplistic formulas when it comes to the spiritual life. You see, the assumption that these men at the time are operating under, which was common of the day in that part of the world, was that if you're wealthy, 
That is a mark of having been blessed by God. That is an, if, you're, if you've got the goods, it's evidence of God's pleasure with you. And, and that may sound odd to us, but I don't know that it really is. I think in many ways we still operate with that understanding. You think in terms of how um, we're, we're, we're the, the formula that we're raised in, the, the con- how we're conditioned, going back to how we're accustomed to thinking. You know, if, if you just train, you'll make the team. If you'll just uh, apply yourself, if you'll just study harder, you'll get the grades. If you just work, push yourself, you'll get the raise, you'll get that job, you'll get that position, things will open up for you. And in many ways, you know, there's some truth in all of that, and yet at the same time, as Jesus says at the end, the, many, the first will be last and the last will first. His is an upside-down, inside-out kingdom, and that's just not the way it works when it comes to entry into the kingdom. Work harder, study harder, try harder, be good. That's not how it works. Blowing up our simplistic formulas, what Jesus instead, though, replacing it with, I want you to know that God has an exclusive solution in mind. The disciples are thinking, look, if if the rich can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's monergistic, one-sided. He alone can do it. He has to be the one to do the saving. He alone can save us. He is the one who made us. He is the only one who can remake us. And in fact, our need is so great here, it's not just that he has to save us, he has to show us that he has to save us. The one who made the eyes, the physical eyes that we have, has to give us spiritual eyes with which to see. The one who put the heart beating in your chest has to renew and remake that heart. And he alone, he alone can do these things. You know, it's amazing to me. I noticed this yesterday. Just mulling over this text while my face was freezing, walking my German shepherd at seven degrees or whatever that was. Um, just mulling this text over, and it occurred to me that twice in this passage that mention is made of Jesus looking. Actually, three times, but I'm thinking of twice. Once it says here in verse 27, Jesus looked at them, meaning he, he sees them. He knows them. And he's responding based on what he sees and what he knows. It's the exact same wording that's used as Jesus looks at that rich young man and responded the way that he did, telling him what he needed to hear. He's looking at us right now, telling us what we... He's looking at you and me right now, telling us what we need to hear. It's interesting, scholars, for as long as I think we really could say, have, have said, you know, Mark's gospel... Mark got all this from the Apostle Peter. Peter knew Jesus' look. He He knew what it was to be seen and known by Jesus and then to have such words spoken to him. Do you know that he sees you? 
and he's speaking to you these words. He alone. He alone. This is the problem of works. We need to hear this. Let me come back to the, that nasty little word I used earlier, exclusiveness. It's a nasty word, in, of course, in our modern, postmodern, post-post-postmodern culture. Um, the idea of there being any one way, any one truth, any one anything goes down hard uh, in our day. Um, but we have to talk about this, and we have to say this and be clear on, on this point. There's an exclusivity to this message. Jesus alone can, can do this. And, and, and the reason is it gets to the nature of the problem. You see, if our problem fundamentally was just that of knowledge, well, then all we would need is enlightenment. If our problem was just an out-of-balance, moral balance sheet, well, then work harder. Do better. Sola bootstrapsa. But that's not it. That's not the problem. The problem is not up here. It's in here. The problem is not outside of us. It's so down deep within us that only Jesus can reach it. Only he can cure this. There's an exclusiveness to this. There's only one hope, one cure. And that's what Jesus is warning us about here, us about here out of, of course, love. Love is what's driving these words. Oh, that we would humbly hear this. Understand this is true of yourself, whether you're thinking about becoming a Christian right now or you can't remember a time when you didn't know Jesus. We still need to be settled with this every day. How can we be secure in God's sight? The warning, the warning regarding wealth, the warning regarding works. Finally, what are you going to talk about community? So glad you asked. The third point, the warning pertaining to the question of worth. Like, is it, in essence, Peter's asking here, is it worth it? It's like an investment strategy, basically, Peter's getting at here. Nick, you could probably tell us something about this. Um, verses 28 through 31. Picking up where, just where we've left off, Peter, you know, after having heard what he said, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Look, Peter is asking the question, okay, we've done so much. We've given up so much. Are you saying it doesn't matter? It doesn't count for anything? It's quite a question. And if he hadn't asked it, you would have. I would have. One of the other 11 there would have, standing nearby. Is it worth it? Does it matter? His great concern, Peter's protest here, because, you know, he's speaking truth. They'd given up all their security, everything that they had known to follow him. 
their livelihood, their professions, all left behind. All their comforts, houses, there's a reason Jesus is mentioning that. Relationships, family, friends, which again, in that culture, was everything. It's part of your identity. You leave behind, especially your family, your village, your people. Peter's not exaggerating here when he says, we have left everything and followed you. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? Slap him down? No. Jesus affirms what Peter says. He doesn't argue. He agrees. But he pushes it further. Peter's protest is met by Jesus' promise. Peter's protest, our protest, is met by Jesus' promise. Now, if you pay attention, you think about how Jesus is speaking and what he is saying here, clearly he is taking a larger view here, a much larger view. He's taking in the whole horizon that with, he's acknowledging, yes, with the gains in this life, there are going to be challenges in this life to follow me means you are aligning yourself with a kingdom that is reasserting itself contra a parasitic, insurrectionist kingdom, that is Satan, who wants to have this world, but the true king will not let him have it. But that usurper will resist, will not just lay down his arms and give up. There's going to be a fight. So if you're going to follow me, Peter, you need to know what you're in for. Even in this life, there's going to be this conflict. There's going to be this challenge with the gains that I'm promising you are coming and have come. There are going to be the costs, the persecutions, and the challenges. With the, res with the resistance, with the persecution, Peter, that's coming now, is also coming my provision and assurance for you now. Now. Not just then, now. Again, what does Jesus say? It's so easy to miss this. If all you have in mind for uh, what Jesus is promising is, is everlasting life after death, Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom is so big it's lapping over the edges of the future into the present. Look at what he says, verses 29 through 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one, Peter, or the rest of you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. How can this be? Jesus, what are you speaking of? This is what Jesus is saying. As you follow me, yes, there will be others who will follow along with you, with me, but there will be many, tragically, sadly, bringing much sorrow to your heart who will not. And I will be with you for that. 
And even still along the way, Peter, I know you've given up so much and so many to follow me. I am promising you so much more and so many more in terms of family, in terms of community, than you could possibly imagine now. That's what I'm bringing you into, Peter. Do you understand? Do you understand? This greater community, this greater family that I am bringing you into. Can you see what I see for you? Now think with me the implications of that for community. Maybe we need to have our eyes checked. And it's not just, well, not every creature out there crawling, swimming, flying, running, whatever, has the sight of an eagle. There are a lot of things out there that can barely see what's in front of their face. I fortunately have never had this encounter, but I've read that the mighty rhinoceros, impressive as its horn may be and incredible as its speed may be, cannot tell the difference between a person or a tree at 15 feet. Good to know. Keep it 16 feet. Or the bat. They're not actually blind, but they're completely dependent upon echolocation to, to hunt the bugs. Or the bull, whatever your local matador will tell you. It's not the red that gets the bull's attention. It can't see the red. What it's seeing is the motion getting its attention because it just doesn't see well otherwise. Or you think in terms of the surface of this globe, three quarters of it covered by water. The further down you go into those great, 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 great depths, the more diffuse the light and the less the fish, everything else down there has any need to see. And moles... Basically, the terrestrial version of the deep sea fish. No need to see. My point. What is the point? My point. In many respects, we don't see much better than any of those creatures I just listed, especially when it comes to the topic of community. We don't see what Jesus is seeing for us. We don't see, we're not hearing what Jesus is saying to us, to Peter, here in this moment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian, um, in the 1930s and 40s as the Nazis were rising to power, uh, before his being executed in, I think it was May, of, May or April of 45, just weeks before uh, VE Day, um, he was participating in the leadership, and I really he founded and led an underground seminary. And out of that experience, he wrote a classic work called Life Together. You can still easily find it today. It was a great little book. I encourage you to get it if you don't have it. And I'm going to read you a quote from it. I think it's in your, uh, your notes, your quotes uh, here in this morning's bulletin. This is what Bonhoeffer wrote in Life Together. So between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in invisible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Let me just repeat that and fill in the blank, CPC Clarksville. It is by the grace of God that a congregation, we'll say this one, is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered, lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. 
they know that visible fellowship is a blessing. What Bonhoeffer's getting after here is he had come to see in this experience of in, in the travails of the time with the Nazis rising, the pressure increasing, and in this, the context of this community, this rich, rich community in that underground seminary, that community is a foretaste of the renewal that is to come. Community is a foretaste of the renewal that is to come. Now, community does point us to the greatness of God. We talked about this last week, that it takes a, a community, it takes a whole church, it takes a group of people. Because God is so great, he is so infinite, it takes all of us just to know just a bit of him, just to get a glimpse of just a bit of him. So community points us to the greatness of God. Community also points us to the greatness of my need, your need, our need, our spiritual poverty. Because I'm so selfish, so proud, so resentful, so bitter. Well, I only, only discover that in community. And that then drives me to Jesus. So community points me to the greatness of God. Community points me to the greatness of my need. But community also points us to the greatness of the coming renewal. How? Because in that, we get a glimpse of the future. We get a glimpse of what's coming. The question is, is that how we see it? Is that how we see it? Out of love for us, that's what Jesus is offering us, has made possible for us as in one day bringing to us. But is that how we see it? Is that how we see it? Let me end with this. Um, some of you have heard me tell some of this story before. It's been a while, but I don't think I've ever told the sequel to the story. So my experience, third year at Virginia Tech. It was a rough year, a really, really rough year, especially so because of the tragic uh, and sudden death of one of my roommates in the apartment that we were living in at the time. It was four of us, and he was killed in a motorcycle accident. Um, in just a few weeks after his funeral, the surviving three of us decided that we were going to set aside one night a week for Bible study and prayer, just the three of us. We didn't let anybody else. It didn't matter who, who you were. You had to be a survivor of that in that apartment to be a part of that group. I know that's exclusive. Deal with it. So we spent months, once a week, in Bible study and in prayer, just the three of us. And I cannot describe to you the transformative effect that had on that place of pain, making it a place of peace and healing. And not just that, but the transformative effect it had on us, the relationships, but on our own hearts, the growth that took place, the transparency that opened up, the vulnerability that opened up, our growth in Jesus together that opened up through that. Now, sadly, that had to come to an end. The semester ended. We all had to go home. I still remember getting into my 65 Mustang. That's right. 
I still remember getting in my 65 Mustang and driving from Blacksburg, heading on back to Richmond and not wanting to go. Not wanting to leave that behind. Mourning it because of what I'd tasted, what I'd experienced. Now, some of you have heard me tell that story. You haven't heard me tell the sequel. And the sequel is this. That through that, through those months, and what I experienced such that it caused me to mourn its absence, it opened up things in my mind and heart to understand it was well nigh past the time to pull out of a very long-standing, unhealthy dating relationship with someone you've never met, just so you know. But it did, as a consequence of that, open up some space in my mind and heart to become someone interested in a dark-haired, tall beauty by the name of Sarah Murphy. Which then led to a few individuals here in this room who would not be here otherwise. So where am I going with this? Community can be very disruptive. It can also be very transformative. And if you're not careful, life-giving, literally. This is what Jesus is putting before us. This opportunity, this gift, shared life together in him. May we humbly hear. Can we pray? Lord, we are so conditioned and so accustomed to think the way that we think, to feel the way that we feel. We don't think about how we think. And we do need to hear you continually speaking to us regarding the dangers of wealth and giving ourselves towards living for more and more stuff. We need to hear you speaking continually to the danger of living by works. We need, as our Puritan forebearer said, to repent of our righteousness. We need to continually hear you speaking to the worth. Yeah, to follow you is to lay everything down, but then we get that and everything more in spades. What you have promised is beyond our fathoming. And regarding community, we ask that you'd help us to see this gift as you intend it to be, to live it out as you intend it to be. And here in this moment, we do want to commit to you this launch, this relaunch of our community groups. We pray for the logistics, all the sign-ups, all who's going where, when, uh, the leaders, the hosts. Would you bless them in their preparations? May we, through this, especially in this coming semester, experience you together in a way we could not on our own. We pray this in your name. Amen.